0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25.
1: Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
2: Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is theological education, but it's theological education viewed through through global eyes, and we have with us Two people who are tied, in both cases, to different kinds of organizations that are very familiar with the situation around the world. Scott Cunningham and Michael Ortiz are my guests today. Uh, Welcome, Scott. Thank you, Daryl. And Michael, welcome to you. Good to see you, Daryl. Thank you for inviting us. Glad to do it. Michael is a colleague at Dallas Seminary as well. I'll have them introduce themselves in just a second, but um, we certainly, as you can tell, since I'm not in the studio, are transmitting this during the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And although we don't want to talk just exclusively in terms of COVID, we want to also address just the general condition of seminaries globally and theological education globally as well. It's hard to talk about it these days without either thinking about the impact of COVID-19 and probably the post-COVID-19 impact on schools as well, that I think uh, both are seen as very much a reality for theological education in general. So, Scott, I'll let you introduce yourself first. Um, You are tied to an organization called Overseas Council, if I'm not mistaken. And so tell us a little bit about the council and your role in it.
1: Yeah, so so my wife and I uh, began ministry overseas in the country of Nigeria, where we trained uh, seminary leaders. Uh, We we were there for over 25 years and became connected uh, with a number of organizations that focus on theological education, uh, focus on how to train uh, leaders better uh, for the church around the world, especially in what we call the majority world. Uh, and one of those organizations is Overseas Council and Overseas Council was working, uh, in Africa. They actually are working all around the world, but, uh, that's how I got connected with them was through the work in Africa, the seminaries that I had contact with around the continent. They were also partnering with, uh, and, and their, their role, uh, around the world is to select a number of different seminaries. We work with about a hundred altogether now in about 70 different countries. Uh, and our our goal then is to train Christian leaders by partnering with these vital seminaries worldwide. Uh, so it's it's through the partnerships that we have with these seminaries that we uh, desire to see the flourishing of the church uh, through well-trained leaders.
2: Yeah, my my background in this area goes back to uh, a fellow named Bill Taylor, who used to work very closely with the World Evangelical Association, and and then uh, Manfred Cole, who I came in contact with through uh, the Lausanne Cape Town effort. And uh, we served together as we tried to distribute the materials from Lausanne out to these various locations that were kind of sub hosts for Lausanne Cape Town. And uh, the amount of work that these men and others like them did with seminaries, literally globally around the world, I think Manfred's visited, I don't know, in the hundreds in terms of mm. seminaries, in terms of what he was involved with, um, really opened up, um, for me at least, the, uh, a global awareness about the different kinds of institutions that exist the different kind of training that's going on the needs um in some cases how what goes on in western schools doesn't entirely fit what's needed in other parts of the world just a whole lot of dimensions of that michael uh tell us both your role at dallas and then also your role with iset and tell people a little bit about iset
3: sure um yeah well thank you thank you thank you again daryl for inviting us to be part of this um So, I currently at Dallas Seminary, what I, what my role there is department chair for the World Missions and Cultural Studies Department. I've been in Dallas Seminary since uh, 2016, January 2016. Started there actually to begin the Spanish program at Dallas Seminary, uh, which now DTS in Espanol. And that's been really, the Lord's been really gracious with us uh, through that project. And it's really grown quite a bit. I think in the fall we had over 100 students. Ah uh, taking classes online from about twenty different countries around around the world. So that's been fun to to be part of that, but now I'm chairing the the admissions department here at Dallas Seminary and really enjoying that, a whole new set of challenges with that, leading a department and uh, it's also led me to allow me to see behind the curtains even more at Dallas seminary yeah there's it's a, one thing to be a thought, student,
2: don't go there yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, I was a student there for a number a number of years and so, as scott was of course as well so there's there, there's one side of it that you see as a student then you come on to this side and you see all kinds of great, mostly great things, really. To be That's to true. So, yeah. um, but but uh, yeah, besides that, then I also serve as uh, international director for ISET. ISET is the International Council for Evangelical Theological Education. And ISET was founded back in the late 1970s, uh, 1980, 81 was when they first really ramped up and started to uh, develop the organization. But basically, it was birthed out of the World Evangelical Alliance, which, which Daryl, you just mentioned the WEA in, in relationship to Bill Taylor. Uh, although Bill wasn't involved with that, but but the World Evangelical Angelical, the World Evangelical Alliance was instrumental in starting. I said back in the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, and um, and what it really is at this point is it's a it's a network of eight regional accreditation agencies from uh, really all over the world and we can get into more of that later if you want to in the details of that but also what we do with i said we, we want to focus on enhancing quality and community uh, both quality and community in global theological education for the sake of the church really we we, we have a manifesto that was developed right around the time that uh, i was founded and if you read that manifesto it is uh it is fascinating to see Closely uh, connected uh, from the very beginning, I said we wanted to be with the church, and uh, as an international director now for so I said, I see it as, as an important value for who we are, what we intend to do with I said.
2: Now, uh, uh, just to be clear, and, and of course, looking at your last name, it's transparent you're Hispanic, you're actually Cuban in background, is that right? Correct, yeah. yeah. Well, my,
3: my parents were from Cuba, I was born in. New York City, learned Spanish before English, and that kind of thing. So, yeah,
2: very cool. And you and you've ministered. Uh, you know, Scott mentioned that he was in Nigeria for a long time. Uh, you have been in and out of Cuba multiple times, uh, before, and that really fueled your global interest. Of, do I have that right, as well.
3: Yeah, that's correct, Daryl. I mean, when, when I actually was, it was when I, when I was at Dallas Seminary, just about to finish up my ThM there. I was introduced to Cuba. Um, and in terms of missions work in Cuba and started going there in um, right around 2007 or so. And I've been there about 25 times um, approximately over the last number of years. But over the years there, the Lord has allowed me to really minister in and through and with the seminaries that are in Cuba and um, a a large number of them there. Uh, That's a whole nother story if we want to get into that but uh but in essence we 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 were instrumental in, in starting an, an accreditation agency in cuba that eventually developed uh, a relationship with CETA, which is the caribbean net, uh, member for iset uh and of course overseas council and scott cunningham and Osway fernandez many other people were have been really heavily involved in cuba as well so i got uh, it was a, a way to introduce me to theological education in uh Really rather smaller setting, and then from there, expand from there.
2: And I take it that some of that relationship came through CETECA, which was a seminary in Guatemala City, Guatemala, and uh, has been very involved in uh, ministry in Latin America and general Spanish-speaking. Uh, actually, the Spanish-speaking world, period. I mean, I stretches to Spain. Correct correct yes yeah. that's correct so um and and part of the point of going through that detail with both of you is to show that you your ministries have really been global uh from the very very beginning in terms of of what you were doing and been involved with scott let me ask you this question um overseas overseas council uh, i take it um advises um Ed- theological education globally fill that <laughs> advises is an interesting word. Uh, f- fill in the details. What is it? What does that mean? What does it take to advise seminaries around the world? And I take it that, uh, for lack of a better description, the contextualizing of theology is extremely important to the work that you do.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point. All, all good points, Cheryl. Uh, yeah, the word we use is partnership, um, and, and that doesn't t- tell you anything more than it advises, does it? Uh, well, know, in one feel- sense,
2: it does because it, it gets at the idea of you come alongside, and this is not a, a, a paternal relationship, which is important to uh, right. underscore.
1: That's right. So, uh, we would be very strong components of what we would think of as mutuality, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where, where we, uh, bring something to the table and other people also bring something to the table. We, we may, we may set the table, but other people are bringing into it also. And so a lot of what we've learned about theological education doesn't come from within. It comes from our partner seminaries who are just doing some of them doing a fantastic job. Uh, so, um, the, the organization started primarily as a, a fundraising uh, agency to supply funds from the West uh, to a seminary in Korea. Hmm. Uh, and so, the word, the name Overseas Council was actually the Overseas Council of the Seoul Theological College. Oh, so wow. Where overseas actually met the U.S.
2: And how <laughs> far back did that go? Uh,
1: Well, that's more than 40 years ago.
2: Okay. Uh, All right. But
1: it was businessmen in Indianapolis who saw that one of the needs of a seminary in Seoul, Korea was for funding for students. Okay. And so that was the origin. Uh, And and that is important to acknowledge because we still see that the resources of the West uh, can still be used in a legitimate way to assist where uh, there are, are seminaries that lack resources. Hmm. Okay, that's a legitimate thing. Now, we have to think carefully about stewardship and over and, uh, overdependence and unhealthy uh, dependence and so forth like that, but still legitimate. But what we saw uh, in the growth of the uh, organization was that uh, oftentimes schools needed more than money. In fact, sometimes they didn't need money at all. Uh, what they needed was advice. They needed learning. Uh, They needed to learn how to do something better, uh, to work smarter. And so that's when we began moving more in the the direction of what you would call consultation uh, or advisement. Uh, We began to provide training for seminary leaders. Uh, We uh, now have a, a network of what we call our regional directors, international regional directors, uh, Michael mentioned one of them, Josue Fernandez, who's our regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean, whom he works with in Cuba. Uh, and those regional directors are indigenous. They're, they know the language, the culture, the people, the networks. Uh, they can leverage resources that are local uh, within the context. And then they uh, partner with the seminaries that we've selected. So so it, it is, one of our values really is uh, a contextual, uh, contextual nature of theological education. Um, I, I think earlier on you mentioned, Daryl, that the, these are not necessarily seminaries that you would find in the United States. It's not like we take a Dallas seminary and we uh, airlift it, you know, and drop it into Medellin, Colombia. Or Havana, Cuba. That
2: would be some uh, plane uh, that could do that. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and not only do we not want to do, not only could we not do that, we don't want to do that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. When you think about about, I, I just watched a, a documentary on Frank Lloyd Wright, a great architecture uh, architect uh, of the last century in the U.S. But but the beauty of his architecture is that it blends into the context. So you could take one of his outstanding buildings, uh, an office building in Chicago, and you take that building and you plunk plunk it down in the middle of the desert in Arizona, and now it becomes bad architecture. It's just, it's not contextually relevant. It doesn't fit uh, the landscape. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we do is try to help schools think about, well, what fits in your context? And what we mean by that is, What are the needs that your seminary is responding to with the needs of the church? How do you understand the church? How do you understand the needs for the leadership in the church, Christian formation in the church? Uh, And then how do you design programs that particularly respond to those needs uh, with the resources that God has given you to steward uh, in your context? So so we're very strong on, on the contextual nature of theological education because we understand it as missional. It's it's serving the needs of the church. So an understanding of the needs of the church uh, and and partnership with the church is critical in our understanding of what so- we'll, we'll solid come, sound theological education looks like.
2: We'll come back later to discuss um, some of the uh, unique curricula that that. Generates because I think that will be fascinating to some people. Uh, Michael, let's talk about what what you're engaged with. I've watched you on multiple Friday mornings, bright and early, because you're dealing with time zones. (laughs) One of the challenges, obviously, of doing global ministry is, you know, people occupy all the time zones around the world. And so, you know, to put together an event, uh, you're up at – I think it's 8.30 your time. It's 7.30 my time in the morning dealing with uh, these weekly um, calls that you've been leading over ISED, interviewing people globally around the world. I think you've just about touched every continent. I'm waiting for the interview on theological education in Antarctica. But other than that, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, be one cold interview. But anyway, uh, stay stay tuned, uh, Daryl. That's exactly right. So, uh, but... um, the challenges that you have about helping people with theological education, and I want you to help address us, kind of in an overview way of the different kinds of seminaries that we're dealing with here, because I think most people, particularly in the West, if they think about a seminary, they think about a richly resourced, um, technologically capable um educational institution, mostly dealing with uh, graduate students or certainly those of a, of a college education layer or level. Talk about uh, how that is not necessarily what's going on in a, in a majority world context. Yeah, well, it, it, that's perfectly true, Daryl. What happens is when we,
3: in in North America, in the West, we normally use the word seminary. We are thinking about um Graduate level work um, students that have already uh, achieved a bachelor's have a degree and now they're moving on to a seminary postgraduate work program. But uh, in majority world, uh, most of those when we use the term seminary, for the most part, they really are referring to programs that are akin to maybe a Bible college type of program or something something along those lines. Now they're very ministry focused, so they are preparing students for ministry. But they're doing it uh, more uh, and more along the lines of a under- undergrad type of training program. Now, some of these seminaries do have, of course, master's degrees programs and, and and even some doctorates as well. But for the most part, they're they're usually undergrad. And then if we try to unpack that even further and try to understand what what are the what are the scope of those programs and how long are they and how are they staffed and how are the, how are the, where the, where does the faculty come from and so on? There's a, there's a huge variety of that. I mean, it's not uncommon to have most of the professors uh, be bivocational or even sometimes tri-vocational. They're, they're pastoring. They might have a job outside of their church. They're, they're teaching, um, all sorts of things. And students, of course, that are, sometimes they have to travel miles, if not, uh, sometimes even days to get to the seminary to study. And some of the commitments that some of these students make are really astronomical. I just uh, received a, a, a little blurb article from the um, from the Middle East about a student who, despite the COVID despite the COVID crisis that we're in, uh, he still has committed. He's committed to continue his program as best as he can. Of course, the school is no longer able to meet uh, in person so what this this student is actually doing is he is traveling uh, hours each day to get to a cafe a location where you could have good internet access mm-hmm. and and uh and he doesn't have you know he doesn't have a high-speed train that's taking him there or anything like that right and he's got to figure out how is he going to get to this place so he can study So that's another layer. You know, what, what, how, how are the faculty um, designed and and put together? Students, where do they come from? What are they capable of? Uh, Curricula, um, facilities, uh, internet—all these different layers that uh, come into play. Um, that are really varied all across the world, especially in the majority world and the, and
2: the students aren't necessarily, you think about the education level of the students that they come into this education with, that's not a given either. Um, you know, I've, I've taught in India multiple times uh, on several places that I've been. And the one Case, I remember I had students who literally had trekked hundreds of miles uh, to come to the the site for the week of classes and then trekked back uh in some cases crossing national boundaries to get there uh, i mean it's uh it's amazing the commitment that some of these students have but also the education level of the students is kind of all over the map as well scott is that not is that not another reality that that uh these institutions are dealing with
1: yeah it, that's true that's true uh, so within any given context, uh, you've got a, a, a wide variety of educational achievement and and readiness. And so, and schools recognize that they, they see where the needs are of the students and uh, design programs <clears throat> to meet those needs. And so, and what you're actually seeing is, is a, a wide spectrum then, uh, all the way from, uh, as we were describing up to up to doctor level, but going way down to uh, even sort of like a high school level and everything in between
2: yeah now let 's I want to talk a little bit about curricula because this is this is uh, interesting for one thing. I think I remember you giving a presentation at one point i don 't remember where it was. Uh, where you talked about curricula at various majority world schools, and when we use the term majority world just to be clear mm-hmm. uh, it uh, um it 's a description of the majority of the world i mean uh i mean you know it it's it 's not it 's not the the narrow band if I can say it that way of a particularly uh western oftentimes uh context, uh, multilingual in many cases. You know, you go to – again, I'll use India as an example. You've got multiple languages you're dealing with in any particular location. Um, uh, You go to other places, people are dealing with three and four languages. In South Africa, I think there's somewhere between nine and 11 languages that are spoken in the country. I mean, it's just uh, amazing. Array of possibilities, but the thing I remember most is I think you, re- I remember you talking about a curriculum and it included things like agriculture and, uh, mm. and, and, and you know, and, and things I go, you know, I don't think when I walked on the campus at Dallas Seminary that I was going to sign up for a class on farming, and and so, uh, uh explain what in the world's going on there,
1: yeah. I think one of the strengths uh, of of majority world theological education is it tends to be a bit more holistic uh, than what we see in the West. And and what I mean by that, and this is not, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but uh, but at times you see a, a really healthy uh, integration of uh, of disciplines. Um, and, and part of that partly is the worldview because uh, Christians uh, in the majority world tend to see their lives as more holistic. So Christianity is not something you just do on Sunday. Uh, it's not something that only that the church does within its four walls, uh, but it's something that that does involve our whole lives. So they tend to see the world as more holistic, not as sacred and secular, uh, but as as integrated together. Um, and they tend to learn that way also, so they don't tend to learn only in what we think of as the narrow disciplines of biblical studies and historical studies and theological studies, but it tends to be more of a, a blended type of approach, integrated type of approach, a multidisciplinary type of approach. I think those are all healthy things, by the way. Yeah, uh, because so,
2: that's how so, Christian Christi- so Christianity isn't just the humanities, it's about human life and the whole of human life. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so, uh, and discipleship then
1: is, right. is part of growing up as to everything God wants us to be as humans in, in a new creation. And so
2: if you're caring uh, so, for the whole of the person, right, then then, right. then, in certain contexts, if you don't know how to help a person work with their livelihood, you're limited in how you can minister to them.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, and, I think what's and also so, happened
3: Oh, go ahead. go ahead. I'm
1: sorry. No, right. oh, go, go ahead. Well, I, I was awesome. going to say that that so the <laughs> the the so it wouldn't be unusual to find a course in agriculture or a course in public health uh, or a course in uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, those are not unusual kinds of courses that you would find within a seminary context. Uh, Michael mentioned the fact that a lot of times the leaders are bivocational. And so, uh, when you prepare a leader, you're not only preparing him for the pulpit, uh, but you're preparing him for the farm as well. Uh, And and so, we see programs where an agricultural uh, program is blended with uh, a, a professional theological program into one.
0: This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
3: Go ahead, I think Michael. Also, yeah, well, well, I was just going to add a little bit to that as well. I think Scott's raising some great points. I think what also happens is that oftentimes because the professors are usually bivocational, sometimes tri-vocational, they're they're pastors as well. So they are, they are leading churches they're leading congregations, sometimes multiple churches. So they have a uh, distinctive uh, pulse uh, on what's going on in their communities and so when they come into the classroom or they deliver material within the classroom in a lot of these locations, they are very sensitive to what's going on in society and what the churches really need. And so in a, in a certain, at a certain level, we, we can talk about this gap that exists between theological education and the local church, and that gap has existed there for quite some time. But I think what I find is, is in a lot of the majority world contexts, that, that gap might be not quite as, as wide as as in the West, sometimes, and that's for a variety variety of reasons. We've touched on some of those
2: already, and and of course, some of the some of these church leaders. Uh, I think I remember this from my experience in the Caribbean. Is um, they aren't leading a single congregation, they're actually multi, they have, they have a circuit, they're like the Methodist circuit rider, you know, and right. several congregations they're dealing with on a particular Sunday, for example, or during the week, and uh, and covering it that way, and, and this practical uh, role makes them inherently, and I, I think the African com- American community in the States is the closest example of this, automatically puts them in a social role in the context in which they work which uh, which makes them important citizens in general, not just in connection with their churches, so the whole thing is more woven together, if I can say it that way, I mean holistic is a good word, but what does that actually look like that 's what you 're talking about it 's these these networks of, of influence and in some cases decision making that end up uh, impacting not just the church but the society as a whole in which in which the pastor is functioning, so what is required of them in in terms of ministry and care, um, extends beyond just the passing on of uh, of biblical information. Let me let me ask a question. It'll, say, it'll sound like an odd question, but I think it's an important thing to raise because it shows how context does impact. You know, sometimes if 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 you were to say, "Well, a seminary curriculum has has curricula like." farming or finance or development or something like that that you're moving somehow and I'm going to use this phrase into a social gospel kind of area and there's dis there can be discomfort with that with some people in the west but that's not really what that represents it really represents this this connection to life thing that we've been talking about that is that is so important to to ministering effectively in pastoral care for your people. Mm -hmm. Scott, develop that a little bit, because I think that's a misunderstanding that sometimes can come about, about, well, are they really doing the work of a seminary? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so uh, again, if you think about what the needs of the church are and who's going to supply those needs, who's going to meet those needs, uh, and you look at what a leader needs to be within a particular context. Uh, you want to equip that leader with everything that he needs. Uh, you don't want to leave those gaps, and so that's why you do need to provide uh, um, education, training in areas that we wouldn't think of as as needed for a Christian leader. Uh, but in those contexts, if if we don't provide that kind of training, then they don't get it. And and yet, the, for the church to flourish within that community, that's those are the kind of skills that a Christian leader needs. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but it has nothing to do with what we would call the social gospel, except that we they do see the gospel as holistic, also as impacting every part of their
2: lives. Which, of course, is just solid theology in terms right. of the way God works. So, uh, okay, so, Michael, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I think we could talk about two kinds of seminaries. Uh, we've talked about the seminaries that are very much like the West— as I said, are are reasonably well resourced. Uh, I know that Overseas Council has helped many seminaries, but what you might call hub seminaries in different regions. Uh, develop their resources, you know, build buildings, classrooms, chapels, that kind of thing that really allow them to function uh, fully, I mean, Sateka is like this, uh, I know uh, the Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in uh, the Middle East is an example, I mean, there are loads of examples that we could bring forward. Uh, but then there are. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna use this figure. They're the mom and pop theological seminaries. You know, they aren't quite. They aren't quite as well resourced, etc. What challenges? Particular challenges are they facing in this particular moment? Uh, the, and and frankly, challenges that that appear if they're not actually completely overwhelming to those institutions because of the limits that they're operating with and the limits that the current situation has placed them under. Yeah. And I think that we could back up a little bit and just also
3: recognize that most seminaries around the world, uh, even those that you've mentioned that are some of the larger ones, they still operate on fairly thin margins as it is under normal
2: circumstances. Very good. So
3: So they are already, um, operating on tight budget. Hence, you have professors that are bivocational and tribal and so on and so forth. Um, I, what What's happened now is that, and the other part to this that, that I've discovered also, Daryl, as I've interacted with the folks that I'm talking with on Friday mornings, is that uh, it is it is fair to say that theological education has typically had disruptions and challenges along the way. We We, we live in that in that climate, in that a- atmosphere, where there are challenges that are going to come to theological education, the way I view COVID nineteen is is it's, it's it's another it's a and it's an additional layer of of uh, disruption challenge that has fallen upon.
2: Global theological education. So, if you have limited resources on the one hand, and you have a seminary that might be operating in a very restricted country on another, which you might both of which you might regard as res- as restrictions in one way or another, right. you add COVID nineteen on it, which takes away your community and your ability to function in the normal ways that a community would function. That is in that that's a, that is an incredibly thick layer to put on top of what is already a disruptive situation. That is exactly right. I mean, if you want
3: to use like a football metaphor American football metaphor it's like you're you know you, you've got uh, you're, you're about to cross the goal line but the defense is now allowed to have uh, 20 twenty team 20 players on the field not just eleven you oh, know that that's a
2: frightening image <laughs> right so, you
3: know, so that's that's the way I see some of that. what's happened with covid nineteen at this point in time and the there's a whole host of issues that i I've, I've discovered uh, I, everywhere anything from um, uh, Seminary leaders talking about counseling. How is it that we can counsel not just our students but our professors? Because professors now are 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 uh, restricted with their with their own personal income because they don't have the income from the seminary anymore, and they're isolated. They're they're at home. They don't they can't get out. They can't interact with folks. They're and they're wondering what is what is life going to be like at this point moving forward. Um, of course, the finances is, is also a significant challenge for most of these seminaries around the world. Um, a lot of the seminaries through the work of overseas council and scholar leaders and other organizations, they've developed, they have developed strategies to, to be able to, um, assist with their finances. So they have developed strategies that will not only have first stream, second stream, but third or fourth stream revenue sources. Well, those third and fourth streams revenue sources, those are gone, Mm -hmm. um, they're just not available at this point in time. Uh, an example of that is a conference center We're using your facilities to host events. We're not gathering any longer, and this is truly a global pandemic. That's something I think our listeners need to really understand. Understand this is well, we see it on the news, but man, when you start to talk to folks from these different continents, different parts of the world, you realize. This is the real deal. Yeah. I
2: mean, mean, if you look at the, if you just look at the map of the impact of the virus, uh, I think the second nation most hit right now is Brazil. Um, The third is Russia. Um, there was a time when we were only talking about Italy and Spain. Right. Uh, you know, India is now also erupting. So, I mean, it's just it, – I mean, that's the hard part of it. And, of course, you know, we talk about our warm weather situation here in the hopes that that might have a positive impact. But now you've got the southern hemisphere, which is going into their their winter and fall season, which makes it exchangeable as you move from season to season from north to south. I mean, it's just – it is a massive problem, Scott. Um, what would you add to the challenges that uh, seminaries are facing? Particularly, the the all the seminaries are are certainly challenged for resources at a global level, but certain communities are are more challenged than others.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Michael was talking about the financial challenges. That's that's one whole bucket. Okay. So, as he was saying, the disruption of the normal revenue streams. I mean, if you don't have churches that can't meet together, and unfortunately, in many of these contexts, you cannot pay your offering online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the churches don't have money to support the students or the seminary. So that's one stream of revenue that's gone. Students don't have their jobs anymore, so they can't pay their tuition. Uh, they, they can't do local fundraising. And, and the, the fundraising that they were doing in the West is also drying up. Uh, And so all the, as Michael was saying, all the different revenue streams that they would normally count on for their business model, if we would use that uh, word, are are no longer there or are severely stressed. Um, And and that would be across the board. So financial disruption is one. The other is the educational disruption. Okay. And, And this is the disruption caused by the fact that we can't meet together Um, It's happening, of course, all around the world. Schools have been closed and so forth, uh, or severely restricted. Um, And so uh, many schools uh, have already begun using online or remote education, and, and that has given them a sort of a leg up, an advantage if they've already started that. But there are a number of schools that haven't begun that yet. And so they had to to quickly shift over to what we call emergency remote training. Oh wow, <laughs> what a of,
0: phrase.
2: Yeah,
1: like like Netflix, ERT. Uh, you know, we're going uh, <laughs> to yeah. and, and so oh, you know, we find out there's something called Zoom, and and everyone's using a, an app called WhatsApp, which is yeah. not common here in the U.S., but overseas it's very
2: common. Absolutely, yeah.
1: Which, which does provide things, even if you don't have internet you can you if it's on your smartphone you can get use whatsapp
2: but the t- limitation there of course is is that most uh, in, internet usage in the majority world is data use driven which is costly and so and, and so you know again the model is is different in different parts of the world so you sit there and you say well one of the challenges a uh, school may be capable of delivering over the internet but the student may not be capable of receiving that delivery. Exactly. And if they are capable of receiving that delivery, it actually becomes more expensive for them to pursue their education because they're go- they're literally buying uh, what gigabytes at a time. Exactly. And uh, and so that becomes a real challenge. I know when I travel internationally, I you know I often get a SIM local to that to that country just to facilitate things and i'm (laughs) i'm having to buy as i go i mean you know uh, and and so that becomes its own separate challenge it's not like here where where you know you may pay a set rate and you may have unlimited and so you know that doesn't work generally speaking overseas yeah
1: so so that whole move to remote uh training remote uh education although it's it's assumed here in the west that that becomes a viable alternative. Although even here, you know, we have hiccups uh, with faculty who are not sure how to do this. Do I just record my, my talking head online?
2: online? Oh man, that's embarrassing. Don't go there.
1: (laughs) What do we do? Uh, So, but those problems are exacerbated in uh, many majority world contexts where you have, have limited technological infrastructure where it's costly and you have limited familiarity with technological uh, uh, training and learning, and so um, all those make it uh, make it so it's a really a challenge to per, to shift over uh, to uh, teaching through uh, technological mediated means. But but and that's part of the reason why overseas Council exists. It's part of the reason Michael does what he does uh, in, in with the ISET network is to try to help schools. Take steps in that direction to uh, uh, maintain their mission within this dynamic, changing context.
2: Yeah, I, I, just to mention one other thing that's come up, and then we're going to have to wrap up. I, there was a segment I wanted to do on kind of okay, so what does the future look like? But I think we're just going to have to dedicate forty-six minutes to that question, mm-hmm. and, and plus give you all a little time to. F- to see how that falls out because everyone's kind of flying blind <laughs> these days. Um, you mentioned the internet cafe, which is another thing that most people in the West are perhaps not that familiar with. Probably, they th- uh, probably the best analogy in the West is to think about how people gather at Starbucks you know, to use their own personal accounts, but that's not an internet cafe. An internet cafe is a place where that has internet capability that you go and you, I, I take it, you, you pay to use their facility. So again, another expense and, and it, it's guaranteed to give you whatever internet capability is delivered, but it's not the same as working in your living room. Uh, and, and you might have to travel to get there, et cetera. So that's a whole other layer of this, of this alternative way to connect if you can't gather. Yeah, the other factor, as well, Daryl, kind of the, the, on the other
3: side of this for, for a moment is uh, one, something that we're trying to think through now with I said, and I know Scott's thought about it some as well, is it, as we move into this new era of uh, education during this COVID time how do we assess quality? How do we assess what is good uh, pedagogy? How do we assess the students that are really learning uh, materials? And then, so th- there's a the whole level of assessment, is a whole nother question that uh, is starting to, ta- to come up uh, in terms of how do we measure good quality theological education in light of these new ways of delivering and new ways of receiving uh, theological education. So that's, That could be a challenge uh, down the
2: road as well. And not not to mention the challenge of just, for lack of a better description, internet bandwidth in certain parts of the world where where we're used to a certain speed and capability that the internet possesses that may not be a given in certain parts of the world as well, as well as the consistency of the electricity and things like that. I mean, it's just... Uh, and I, you know in one sense, I was like man we're, this is a lot of detail, but it's important detail because it impacts what's actually able to be delivered in in certain contexts, and it shows the challenge of what it what it means to not be able to gather in a singular location where all that is is already available and provided. Well, I want to – our time has flown. Um, I want to thank you all for this kind of um, dip of the toe in the water uh, of global theological education in terms of the challenges that are involved. I'm sure I'm going to ask you guys back to talk about kind of the other half of the story, which is where we may be headed as a result of all this, and the kind of – changes that might be coming that people are having to wrestle with on the other side. But I think this introduction to the way in which theological education has to work with, um, with these variety of factors and variety of realities and even the different way in which theological education takes place will help people get a sense of, of the challenges of what global theological education is involved. And we certainly thank you for your ministry and service to your uh, respective organizations and to what that means to theological training around the world. So thank you, Scott and Michael, for being a part of, yeah, of thank our you really discussion today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you and we thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you have a topic that you would like for us to discuss on the table, uh, please feel free to contact us at this Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, we'd love to consider it. Uh, we're always looking for new topics. And as you can see, uh, we really intend to cover what's going on between God and culture globally and uh, certainly today has been a, a serious look at that question. So we thank you for being a part of the table, and hope you'll join us again soon.
1: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit
0: dts.edu/the table. Dallas Theological Seminary: Teach truth, love well.